0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Let me invite to the the stage of a spectacular final panel of Dan Rosen, the founding partner of uh, Rhodium Group, Huang Haizhou, who's the managing director of CICC, uh, Huang Yiping, who is an alumnus of this institution here, but is now professor and deputy dean at the National School of Development, Liang Hong, who is the chief economist, come on up as I'm introducing, um, chief economist at China, uh, at, at, at CICC, and Xu Gao, who's, who's chief economist at China Everbright. Uh, investment and asset management company they all have spectacular bios but I won't use our time uh, to go over them we've talked a lot about it's already been discussed kind of where we stand in reform we've passed now the fifth anniversary of the third plenum of the 18th uh, Central Committee meeting um, which laid out as has been discussed in the prior panel, a um, very detailed plan for, um, for reform. Um, let me start with, with uh, Liang Hong and say wh- where, where are we in terms of um, uh, reform today, because then I want to use that as the baseline to then look forward and talk about where we think we're going to go. But if we don't have the baseline, I think it's hard to talk about where we're going.
2: I think Dan will be more expert. I
1: can go to Dan if you, well Dan, I was going to go to Dan next, but Dan has developed a, um, what is benchmarking uh, based upon those, um, the reforms laid out in that third plenum. And uh, why don't you talk about the benchmarking and um, where it stands today, and then we'll go to the other panelists to talk about where we think, uh, what we're going to see in 2019 and going forward.
2: Um, I would just give a very broad stroke on Okay, um, and then we can go to the end. I think there's a, uh, the widespread perception is there are very limited progress made on many of the structural reforms. Uh, in certain areas, there may be even backward uh, movements in uh, some of the area. Um, but I think probably um, a more uh, a balanced assessment is uh, piecemeal progress has been made, uh, but relative to the very high expectation back in uh, 2013, uh, the progress was uh, disappointing. Um, and progresses in some of the key areas uh, that people are looking for, SOE reforms, uh, hukou reform, uh, physical reform. Uh, those areas are particularly uh,
3: are worrisome. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. And it's a delight to be um, able to be with our uh, our Chinese friends here for this important dialogue. Right now, Track 2s we refer to these as, and they play a part of supplementing the official conversation so that despite whatever the politics are at the moment, we have continuity in our relationships and our dialogue um, at a civil level uh, among private economists, um, people who were in government, what have you. Um, So I'm honored to be part of this, and and thank you for including me again this year. Good to see everybody. Um, We do have a framework we've built called China Dashboard that we do with Asia Society Policy Institute. Um, We've uh, done it for more than a year. Um, It's based on analysis we did a long time ago of the 2013 Third Plenum um, program that Xi Jinping began his era with. Um, He really started as the best reformer China had seen um, in decades. Um, because he put a program on the table that that diagnosed China needed to get back uh, into high gear, Uh, not just in a couple small areas, but across the board, really making the market decisive. That's where we talk, we we hear that term of art that dates to Xi Jinping's gloss, his commentary on that 2013 plan. So whatever we think about the the challenges in US-China today, The answer should not be that Xi Jinping didn't intend to reform. He very much did. And in fact, we look back the past six years, looking at it objectively, the way we try to gauge things, or more um, anecdotally, and it's not the case that China has not tried very hard to get reform work done. It did. Um, Tried to open up its equity markets, tried to fix its interbank credit markets, tried to make renminbi internationalization and capital account uh, liberalization, uh, signature parts of uh, this era of Chinese um, development because China was becoming a more mature, more advanced economy and there were higher expectations. What China has discovered is that it's really hard to do all that stuff and in fact that so far nobody's invented a way to do it without a good deal of political change at the same time that you're making economic policy change and. That is just not yet been resolved in Beijing. That people have found a way that they're comfortable with to um, to, to uh, manage the balance between accepting political instability a little bit. You know, Donald Trump would love to be able to control the U.S. Federal Reserve. He does not. That means there's less stability in his game plan than he'd like. But it's in the American interest, in the long run, that there is a separation of power between the White House and the Fed. I would suggest. Um, in terms of our re- our near-term indicators here, we track 10 different areas of poor Chinese policy reform. For example, fiscal, um, financial system reform. Um, eight out of the 10 are showing stagnant or negative movement toward China's own goals, including on state-owned enterprise reform, where the goal in 2013 was to more quickly rationalize the use of the state's position in the economy. Uh, uh, Dr. Chen Chow, in his opening remarks today, suggested a modest agenda to get back on track a little bit more with separating those areas of the state economy where there's a good argument for why the state should stay in the lead, but then acknowledging that there's a lot of areas where the state hasn't really convinced us that it's a better answer to China's problems than the market to figure out where how to put money to work. I think Citi, uh, CICC, Financial institutions play that role in a market economy. They decide what's a good bet and what's a bad bet. Um, government in China hasn't really convinced us that in normal industries, uh, tourism, real estate, things like this, general manufacturing, the state can do a sustainably good job at directing where capital can flow. So anyway, we're tracking this. We're not seeing China achieving its own objectives. Therefore, I'm actually quite optimistic that there's nowhere to go but up on the reform <laughs> agenda. In what are the two areas where there's progress? Well, there's, by China's own definition, the goal for innovation is for the high-tech industries to be a bigger share of the Chinese economy. And by that metric, China is succeeding. Now, foreigners are not comfortable with the manner in which China is promoting its high-tech industries some would say at the expense of uh, global high-tech firms. It's a big discussion, of course. But simply as a question of is China more growing high-tech industries or old-line steel industry, it's definitely not growing. It's shutting, as, uh, uh, as, as uh, 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 Justin Lin just pointed out, it's done a pretty good job of shutting down old sunset steel industry mm-hmm. in order to make more room for high-tech in China. It's just a question of whether that's being optimized from a global perspective or just from China's industrial policy perspective, and we should talk about that. Um, On the environment front, while China's economy is cooling and having trouble, that actually improves environmental outcomes because there's fewer factories pumping uh, smoke into the air.
1: But aren't we seeing progress, though, on the environmental front, new technology. I mean, that's a
3: way of responding. On those two areas, when we look by China's own definition of what is essential to keep the country out of a a dead end, Mm -hmm. and then Xi Jinping's term for it, um, we're seeing making progress in terms of the innovation share and reducing the air pollution and some of the water pollution problems. But in the other more structural um, objectives areas where actually I think most economists would have to concede and agree, China's not accomplishing its own uh, reform agenda presently. Hi, Joe, do you agree? You have in front of you a paper which is called
1: Perspectives on China's Market Reform. So do you you agree? (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I did
4: prepare something, but uh, I I think that I wouldn't show the chart to you. Um, I think that... uh, um, if we think about how China came a long way uh, for the uh, reform, uh, I think that we need to really think about uh, uh, something really big or something really gradual. Well, the general approach is, uh, is gradualism. However, that uh, I think that uh, over the last 40-year period, um, um, basically that China had uh, two major push for reform. Um, uh, you could call a Big Bang, one of course in 1978, uh, uh, right after the ending of the Cultural Revolution. I think that the Cultural Revolution ruined the economy and uh, that provided a very strong foundation and the need for, for, for reform. Second, of course, is uh, basically that uh, after 1989 and uh, especially after Deng Xiaoping called Southern China in 1992, uh, China uh, started a, a second round of major reform. And then, of course, that, uh, you remember as well, the uh, Asian financial crisis, it also hit China. So China committed firmly to basically opening this up uh, through WTO negotiation and then you know everything I think this is the second major round of reform. Uh, I think that, so in a way that uh, Dr. Yang mentioned that, uh, I think that uh, after 2013, I think if you think about, if we, we assess the reform, uh, there are indeed uh, progress, this will approach, uh, somewhere here, somewhere there. Uh, but if you think about, the, uh, you know, against the expectation of China will implement a major reform Uh, Similar to 1978, uh, similar to 1992 or 2000, I uh, you know uh, I think that certainly people will be disappointed in that regard. Uh, I think that I I agree with uh, Dan Rosen. Uh, I would believe that uh, um, and hope uh, that uh, uh, 2019 would be a major year for Chinese reform. Uh, I want to provide two reasons why I have such a strong hope for that. Number one, I think that uh, 2018 was you know in terms of economic performance. Was really really challenging. Okay, uh, I think that uh, China's equity market was not doing well. To say it mildly, okay, some call it the worst market in the market in in the world. Uh, you know, for, for, for that year. Uh, also, that if you think about the China's uh, GDP growth, uh, indeed, I agree with Justin uh, Justin that China continued to grow uh, at a reasonable, you know, space, uh, reasonable pace. Um, you know, maybe uh, we don't know the number yet. Maybe six point seven, whatever. In that, in, uh, in that space. Um, however, uh, that, that's in real terms. Uh, if you measure in dollar terms, okay, I, I, if we convert everything into nominal GDP growth in US dollar terms, uh, uh, 2018, China did not really grow much. Okay? The reason is that if you think about it nom- in nominal terms, the China's GDP mm-hmm. probably grow at <laughs> somewhere around 8%. It will be depreciated against dollar somewhere around 8%. Well, you know, in the last quarter of the, uh, 2018, the RMB, you know, stabilized somewhat, but anyway, you know, if you measure in dollar terms, it really didn't really grow much, uh, maybe 2%, okay, M- maybe somewhere in that space. U.S. economy in normal terms, uh, 2018, growing at the, maybe around 6%, okay. I think President Trump would be very happy <laughs> for that. So for China, a developing country, to catch up, China will need to grow faster than the United States. China cannot, cannot continue to grow in U.S. dollar terms, in nominal terms, at 2% or 3%. Uh, uh, I think that that that, 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 that provides a very strong foundation of post for China to, to launch a major reform. So I'm hopeful that uh, 2019 will be the year that we see major reform to be implemented
1: uh, in China. What major reforms?
4: Uh, hmm. I, uh, I think that uh, there are uh, a range of uh, you know uh, 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 proposals uh, you know on, uh, on the table. Uh, one of course is that uh, we can easily go back to the uh, third plan of the 18th uh, Party Congress, right? Well, basically that the key word, uh, a buzzword, is that the, to let market to make a determined you know call uh, for uh, you know to, for for, pricing, for resource allocation. And uh, you know, I think that that says a lot. I think that you, you know really want to implement in uh, in that direction. And then, of course, uh, Dr. Liang mentioned there's a fiscal reform, physical reform, and uh, you know, uh, Justin has keynote also mentioned a few other reforms. I think that uh, yeah, and uh, I, I I think that in terms of these uh, proposals, there there is no shortage
1: of proposals. Yi Ping, do you think? You agree with that? You optimistic about reforms, and specifically, what kind of reform should we be looking for, and what kind of market opening should we be looking for? Maybe our
5: I'll offer slightly different perspective. I think we should recognize the Chinese reform approach is a gradual reform approach, and we adopted the so-called dual track reform approach in a way that, as an economist, I I certainly have been observing the Chinese reform for like more than 30 years. I can tell you at almost every point in the past 30 years, I felt unsatisfied with the government policies because the nature of the gradual reform means if the movement is not further and far enough, fast enough compared to economists' expectations. So. That's just the nature of, of it. It's not a big ban, so you can always criticize uh, the reform. And I, my own work focuses more on the financial sector, um, and I give you one example. At the beginning of economic reform, China only had one financial institution called the People's Bank of China. Today you have a very gigantic financial system already, and I'm not going to give you uh, quantitative indicators, but there are two characteristics, um, and I think it stand out if you compare it to other financial systems around the world. Number one, the degree of financial repression is very high. We calculated an, an indicator for Um, Financial repression, which really measures the degree to which the government intervenes in the financial system. For 2015, out of 130 countries, China ranked number 14. Um, So the degree of financial repression is very high. Number two, um, the banking sector dominates um, in uh, the financial transaction. These two characteristics, normally you would think they're not necessarily consistent with. uh, Um, the key features of a modern financial system. But you look at what happened to the economy during the last 40 years, it certainly did not prevent the Chinese economy (coughs) from achieving 9% average growth um, during the last 40 years. And number two, it helped to maintain financial stability, uh, basic financial stability. So my take away from that analysis is that, well, we all, as economists, we all criticize government intervention in the financial system, but sometimes it could work. In fact, my own empirical research find positive impact of financial repression on economic growth during the last uh, couple of decades. And then we did a lot of uh, uh, exploration, and to just to sum up my key finding, financial repression is bad according to academic research because it reduces efficiency, inhibit financial development, increase financial risk, and create discrimination. So it's bad. But that statement is true only under the assumption that market mechanism works perfectly. If the market mechanism doesn't work well, sometimes the government intervention actually is helpful, certainly overcoming market failure and in a number of ways. The first point I I want to say is, um, sometimes you look at the Chinese system and you don't like it, but that's the way it worked in the past, and to some extent it worked for the Chinese economy. Uh, But then I would say the second point, I think we needed to move forward. that, That system probably worked for the Chinese economy during the first couple of decades, but no longer, no longer in the sense that number one, it could no longer support the kind of innovation that is required. When the government continues to intervene in pricing and allocation of financial resources, it's not a very good system. When the banking sector still dominates the whole financial transaction, it's not very good for supporting innovation. And more importantly, as you probably all know, because the government intervenes so much in the financial system, you see a lot of activities outside of the formal sector. Shadow banking, fintech, and so on. These are all rising. To some extent, these are backdoor liberalization of the financial system. They're actually good for supporting the e- economic activity. But they're not properly regulated, they're creating risks. So I think we need to move forward. And I see the government is already making plans. In fact, they're already making some progresses. Problem, my anticipation is that more progress will be Progress has been already made in three areas. And I think they will continue these efforts in the coming years. Number one, developing um, the multi layer capital markets, which means direct financing and the capital markets, should play a greater role in a financial transaction. Number two, as Hato mentioned earlier, um, the the the, the rule of the market force in pricing and allocation of financial resources. I think that should certainly should continue, and one of the indicators we could look at is interest rate liberalization and probably further reform of the exchange rate. Number three, well, reforming on the regulatory uh, framework. Liberalization would be good, but if you don't do it properly, it also increases volatility, uh, increases risks, and could cause some financial crisis. So market-oriented reform should be supplemented with reform and building a new regulatory system in order to prevent and reduce systemic financial risk. And I anticipate that all changes, progress will be made in these areas. Don't you think that means a reversal
1: of current policy? That is not the direction that the government is going, and that it is has it is approached the shadow banking uh, sector not with a scalpel but with a sledgehammer?
5: Not at all. It has killed, not has all killed
1: all the good and the bad, not, and not
5: therefore reduced kind of not provision of credit to the, the not sp- SME? Not at all. Not at all. I think, uh, as I said earlier, uh, development of the shadow banking and the fintech industries are kind of de facto responses by the market to government control or restriction. So to some extent, they're good. But that does not necessarily mean these unregulated activities should grow as it it did in the past. I think what the regulator is doing is that to bring them under uh, proper regulation, full coverage of the regulation, so for instance, um, the the uh, a lot of uh, um, shadow transactions, now brought back to um, the bank, and the bank would probably set up some new subsidiaries to conduct these businesses. But they they will be they, they will be able to continue with some of the businesses. But a full, uh, full coverage of the regulation is necessary. And I think that that's the same thing is happening in the fintech industry. So uh, bringing back to um, you're saying, have banks provide funding to the small and medium-sized
1: enterprise market,
5: the state banks and others. The state banks are providing funding to SMEs, um, and, but that's not saf- satisfactory uh, for a number of reasons. Um, this is a- another issue. I think the current system is not ideal in providing funding for the um, SMEs and the private enterprises, partly because of the restrictions, for instance, on interest rates. If the interest rate cannot be uh, flexible enough, then there would be no incentive for the banks to provide um, lending to the SMEs. They are providing, but they should do more. The government is asking them to do more now, but I think we need to rethink about uh, the policy approach that is being adopted. At the moment, the government relies on two tools um, to encourage the banks to lend more to the SMEs. Number one is, administratively require the banks to do more, and number two is asking them to reduce the cost of funding. I think these are out of good wills, but they may not help you to achieve the same goal. So ultimately, I think market-oriented reform, market-determined landing rate is a necessary condition. Xu Gao, your thoughts
1: on this, and also kind of how the credit market fits into this whole analysis.
6: Well, actually, I, I I want to talk about the reform uh, first, then then the market. Well, in terms of reform, I think it is fair to see that everybody in China wants more reform. But you know that reform in China is a great experiment that you can learn little from the past history. So the crossing the river by grabbing stone is always the primary strategy. But when you do that, sometimes you do touch a stone and make progress. And sometimes you don't feel stone and you step back. That's why we see stagnation in some reform measures. But I don't think that should be interpreted as that China has abandoned reform altogether. It's just some short-term setback. And if you look at the past, past the past in the 40 years, well in the short term, the reform path really looks like the zigzag path with this volatility, this back and forth. But if you look at it in the long run, I think the, the past is pretty straightforward, pointing to a more, pointing to a market system. And I, that, that's that's my view on the reform. And in uh, in year 2019, I think it is time to step back and uh, evaluate what we have done in the, in the last year. Well, as uh, Justin said, that uh, we focused on the Deleveraging, decapitalization, and the de-stocking in the past two years, and uh, I think that uh, the that has made some unintended consequences, especially on the on this deleveraging policy front. As you can see, that de-leveraging policy has has cut down the credit growth in China's economy and led to a, a severe credit crunch in the real economy. And private enterprises are Hardly, uh, mostly badly hit, with its credit spread uh, widened to all year, all t- ten-year high uh, compared with SOEs. So it's fair to say that uh, the deleveraging policies has has done more harm than good to the Chinese economy. So I think that uh, uh, in in year 2019, they re- the priority of the reform will be shipped to. The last two items, uh, that is the reducing costs and eliminating uh, bottlenecks. And I think that will help Chinese Chinese economy to stabilize in this year. And uh, I believe uh, my forecast for the GDP growth in year 2019 is 6.4%, I think. Uh, I think that is achievable. And and, uh, with some policy uh, adjustment, I think we will have a stable economic growth in China
1: in this year. Liang Hong, was there anything you wanted to add? Since I called on you first and meant to call on you last. (laughs)
2: Um, I just thought about um, um, everyone has their own favorite reform areas. They want to see progress. But if we step back a bit uh, and look at um, five, six years ago, what are the primary major challenges facing China, uh, economically and socially, from maybe Xi Jinping's perspective. I think uh, that's actually corruption, income distribution, and pollution. So uh, if we look back, if I try to find excuses why reform was slower than expected, um, I think China was very successful at climbing down corruption. But that may have led to uh, some unintended consequences of, we start to have uh, a lack of incentive or even lack of experiences of technocrats who can execute reforms. Um, But I think if we talk about progresses, anti-poverty, some of the targets they set up in the third plenary session, they actually were very much on target. Uh, pollution, mm-hmm. the same thing. So again, um, I, I, I think even in the U.S., when, when we think about what not economists, not the market, what most of the people are concerned with, income wealth distribution is a very overarching concern. And, and for China, again, Justin and the last panel touched this, um, the consensus for so-called market-oriented reform uh, become a little bit more debatable and, and needs probably take a little more time uh, for consensus for the right measures to come about. That's just
1: the problem. One of the reasons I always look forward to this, uh, our annual forecast, is I get to put my good friend Huang Hai zhou on the spot. And every year I ask them about the Shanghai and Shenzhen in, <laughs> indices. And my question this year, because the, the, the title of this is Reforms, is what's the relationship between the slow reform, or in, I think some people would, uh, you know, the, the reform that's receding rather than progressing? What's the relationship between that and the Shenzhen and Shanghai indices, and what do you see 2019 being?
4: Oh, that's a very tough question. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it's not a linear relationship, that I can tell you. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's far more complicated than that. Um, I think that they, they, uh, you know, if the reform, uh, reforms can be implemented successfully, uh, certainly would have uh market expectations. I think expectations matter so much. Uh, in a way that uh, if you think about the market performance, I think market performance depends on many factors. Yeah. Uh, fundamentals, uh, uh, you know, the forward-looking uh, perspective, which is where things will be uh, going, uh, you know, not that just next year, maybe next next few years. I, I think that all this will be related to uh, to what extent reform can be successfully implemented. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, that uh, 2018 was not a good year for Chinese market. Um, uh, I think that uh, the, uh, the the economic growth was under pressure, and uh, it, it growth continued to um, to be under pressure as one. Secondly, as Shugao mentioned, I think that the the liquidity was really, uh, in particular, in Q1 and Q2, um, I think liquidity was severely, uh, uh, you know, uh, constrained by some of the, uh, you know, policy measures in a way, Uh, you know, shadow banking, wealth management product, all that, and the the unintended consequence become a market worry. So the liquidity situation in China uh, become very worrisome in Q1 and Q2. Um, and then, of course, on top of that, the uh, US-China trade war uh, didn't help. Um, globally, I think that didn't help. Um, I think the last panel discussed some of that in a way that uh, it not, not only had a consequence on China, uh, on the US market, of course, recently, um, but also uh, it had a consequence on global market. Uh, emerging market as a whole last year, 2018, was not really a great year. Okay, if you look at Brazil, Argentina, Turkey, and uh, South Africa, and uh, China, uh, even you look at India, I think the Indian currency uh, depreciated against dollar by about ten percent for last year. So in a way that in a way that, uh, a way that uh, you know the volatility in the, in the in the market for last year was really really uh, you know quite high. Um, so I think that into uh, twenty nineteen, uh, I believe that uh, um, uh, you know I, I'm hoping and also I believe that China will implement more successful reforms and also China learn lesson from. I, I think from last year about the liquidity management, the, about the, how to clean up the shadow banking, and also I hope that uh, hopefully that after the successful dialogue uh, led, you know, um, um, you know, by uh, Ambassador Hills and the uh, Chairman and uh, also uh, you know, National Committee play a wider role here. Uh, I hope that uh, you know the uh, U.S. China can reach some agreement, and uh, that would uh, that would be really uh, you know helpful for the, you know for the market, not only for China not only for the U.S., but for for global
1: market. Liang <clears> Hong, <throat> anything you wanted to add to your colleagues' comments, or that's good enough? Dan, um, let, let me ask you, if your 10 um, benchmarks became positive, what do you think would happen to the U.S.-China economic
3: relationship? Uh, it would be everything it should be, which is um, the biggest engine of growth on planet Earth for the next 50 years. There is an extraordinary latent comparative advantage between the world's most populous nation, China, that has a track record over 40 years of embracing economic market liberalism much more in many ways than Japan, Korea, other East Asians did when push came to shove, even though, as I would argue, and there would be a lot of agreement. There's a a lot of a debate right now, as Liang Hong put it, about whether that's the right policy package for right now. But unlike a lot of other um, uh, transitional nations in East Asia, China actually has shown that it is comfortable with that idea set if it can deal with the the instability and the risk involved. And there is a just gargantuan set of opportunities um, that we ought to be focusing on between China and the US. But let me point this out, that We are going through this existential strategic rethink of whether China's long-term interests and America's long-term interests, uh, economically, but politically and in security terms too, are as compatible as we believed they were. And some industries that were acceptable for interaction, engagement, being maximally permissive just a few years ago, right? are probably not going to be as open door you know, for a little while at least as they were until recently. Um, you know, Rhodium tracks Chinese direct investment outflows around the world, including in the US. And we have a catalog of almost 10,000 Chinese direct and venture investments in American businesses going back, some of which we've done with the National Committee, Steve, as you know well, going back 27 uh, or 28 years now that included investments in aerospace, American energy, biotechnology, high technology, ICT. Um, and uh, you know, we, we, we publish and list um, those, those activities. But if we can't find our way back to a shared point of view about how basic rules of economic interaction should work, then even the finance sector is going to see doors closing further rather than opening up. We've already seen that in direct investment, FDI flows, in 2018 with new US restrictions, called FIRMA, that are more in the direction of a kind of interventionist, I I dare say, Chinese approach to regulating foreign participation in the economy, rather than us all converging toward uh, the more liberal tradition that America had been the beacon of um, until recently. Um, Nothing matters more than Uh, realizing this potential to see trillions of dollars, uh, in dollar terms, of Chinese savings and investment come out into the world in portfolio investments, in direct investments by companies. To balance that, we need to see, and we, our investors, our savers, me, want to see similarly large trillions of dollars of global savings deploy into China growth opportunities. For that to happen, There need to be rules of the game in Chinese capital markets that are reasonable and are market-oriented and are not going to be arbitrarily overlaid with political considerations that are only China's and not those of Ontario teachers, CalPERS, Fidelities, and cities and everybody else's whenever things get tough for China. And so those are the big questions of our era. If they're resolved in a way that is um, like-minded enough between Beijing and DC, then there will be trillions of dollars flowing in each direction, generating a lot of commercial activity and opportunity. If we can't find our way to a common set of answers to those issues, investors will go elsewhere and will, of course, stay home and um, fiduciaries will have to um, decline okay. to uh, take those opportunities. I think that perfect segue
1: into the next question, which is for our Chinese colleagues, which is, okay. We all believe that structural reform is in the interest of the Chinese people. It's in the interest of of the majority of the Chinese people. Again, I believe the failure to structurally reform is a policy which I call incumbent protection. So it protects incumbents and the people pay a very high price for that. So the question is, what should the United States be doing? In other words, I think Michelle in her panel asked, is the Trump pressure positive, neutral, or actually negative, it creates a nationalist regulation. I mean, Carl, a nationalist kind of reaction. Um, You know, Carl and I were both around for the WTO accession, which was basically using carrots to get China to internally reform. Hai Zhou talked about it in his comments, but it was one of the times of greatest reform in China. The five years after China's WTO accession. Then, in 2006, 7, reform began to slow, um, and compliance with their with the commitments became much more murky. But the first five years, it's fair to say, China's compliance was terrific, and reform was great. So, what should we be telling the U.S. government? Sadly, they're closed, and they won't accept our advice tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, well, what should we be telling them? Uh, start down that end with Xi Jinping. Well, to be honest, I think, uh,
6: in some sense, the pressures from the United States is positive to China. Uh, but in some sense, it's negative. The positive side, positive side is that, um, you know, that um, to reform is to break the old equilibrium and move to a new equilibrium. And naturally, we will feel, feel resistance in that transition period. And uh, against that backdrop, if you have some external pressures, that can really push you forward on the on the front uh, on the direction of reform. So on the, in that sense, I think it is a good thing. But the negative thing that I think I'm afraid that the United States government or the or the policy foreign policy has become too narrow-minded, uh, focusing on something that is basically wrong. For example, it is it makes little sense to focusing on bilateral uh, trade deficit or trade surplus. And uh, I, I, I don't have time to explain that, but I, I, know, I believe that most okay. economists agree with that. Yes. And the, but you focus too much on things like that, it makes real hard to negotiate that the role, that things that are really important. Yeah. And, uh, and you can see that the China and the United States have already integrated with each other deeply. And it's, I think it is I think it's fair to say that it's, it is impossible for these two big countries to delink, so any attempt to delink to delink these two countries will distort the market, will distort the global economy dramatically, and that's what we have. We will start to see in US, in U.S. economy, in the world economy, and uh, in that sense, I think the pressures from the United States is a is a bad thing. Um.
2: I think in the near term, some of these pressures are producing probably good results uh, in terms of pushing China to reduce tariffs, broader market access, better protection of intellectual property rights, um, opening up certain sectors that were closed before. Uh, But I'm a little worried about medium term. Uh, Two things, one, uh, as the previous uh, panel mentioned, a forced, agenda, um, a very proud nation. Uh, We don't know the backlash eventually, uh, how that plays out. But also, uh, I worry about some of the emphasis, some of the, for example, how the ZTE approach uh, case was handled, how Huawei case was handled, that started to push a self-reliance type of emphasis in China. So for us, we are all pro free trade and stuff. We would like companies to specialize, but today, that's not the argument that we can sell
5: in China. Yipin. I very much uh, uh, agree. Um, I think uh, um, any domestic or international uh, positive or negative incentives to encourage China to continue with reform should be welcomed, um, and they would be very useful. Um, particularly in areas where um, the demands are very much in line with the government's plan uh, moving forward. So for instance, two areas I can think of easily. One is improving protection of intellectual property rights. And the number two is opening up the service markets to uh, foreign players. These are, I think, as you can see, already generating positive uh, results. So I think any pressure whether um, positive or negative incentive will be very useful to move ahead. Uh, But the two things I think are points we need to keep in mind. One is what just mentioned. If your pressure means a threat of isolating you um, and uh, uh, that I don't know, the outcome might be unpredictable because if the potential risk is that the U.S. is not going to give us any access to the high-tech stuff, then you are left with developing your own technology without any other choices. So I think we should be very careful. Pressure should encourage China to integrate, not to decouple from the rest of the world. The second is about reciprocity. Um, When we say well we need um, China to um, reform because our regime is more open than yours so you should open, which I agree. But if you say um, my system is, my tariff rate is zero, you should also reach zero tomorrow. Um, In principle, I don't have any problem but I think there is a practical question about implementation. So, So for instance people always say to me that China is not a developing country. Um, Therefore, China should not be um, be, be entitled to uh, a lot of these uh, concessions. Um, My response, to be very honest, was, was uneasiness. I would argue developing country or developed country is not defined by the size of the economy. It's defined by the level of development. You look at China's GDP per capita, definitely it's a developing country. So I think that's a pretty condition. If you start by saying China is not a developing country, then it's very difficult for me to continue the discussion with you. But if you say China is a developing country, at the same time, you're the second largest economy. You have to think about the spillover effect in the rest of the world. Then you should probably go for more reforms. I would actually more embrace uh, the argument. Hi, Joe.
4: I think that the uh, pressures, uh, well, reform is very hard. So I think that uh, in order to implement reform, uh, uh, I think that uh, some pressures internally and externally uh, would be needed and uh, useful, OK? Uh, in, the extent of pressure, I think is, is that's where the, the, you know, the, the, the difficulty comes in. Uh, in a way that if there is no pressure or too little pressure, I think that politicians globally probably won't do anything, OK? I think there is a documented research by political scientists and and also by uh, you know economists specialized in political economy uh, find this result. Um, however, I, I think that if pressure is too much, then basically that uh, you know uh, again you know uh, that, that probably won't be conducive either. So I think that the, the, the you know the, the extent of level uh, you know. Um, Somewhat, uh, I think that not too big, not not too small. Uh, I, I think that also that is an uh, example you mentioned that uh, uh, China's uh, you know uh, accession to WTO. Well, I think that there is a very close dialogue between U.S. and China. China got a lot of help from the United States, and that kind of federal, I think, indeed was uh, was really conducive from uh, both sides, from the U.S. and, and from China, to uh, you know so, so that China pushed successfully for uh, many important reforms. Uh, Related to this, uh, I, I think that uh, they, uh, they, in order to, uh, you know, provide, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, useful, uh, you know, friendly environment, I think that uh, one side could not, uh, should not uh, take too much credit on, on the other side. In a way. so I would suggest that President Trump, uh, you know, uh, would not, uh, you know, uh, send to Twitch, a tweet 3 a.m. claim that uh, he got all the credit. That that doesn't
1: happen. <laughs> But I would suggest that President Trump dedicate that job to the National Committee. That would help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one lightning round question, and then I'll uh, open, open the floor um, to the audience. The, um, it's, it's a wild assumption, but let me ask it. Let's assume the United States um, agrees to a recreation of a TPP equivalent, um, and we have an, a TPP equivalent. The United States accede to it. Would that be a positive for structural reform in China? Yes or no? Starting down there, Hugo. Well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> it's a TPP equivalent. We know what TPP said.
6: Well, you know, that if, if you use TPP as an um, instrument to isolate China from the rest of the world, that was definitely regarded as a threat, regarded as a bad thing from China's side. But if you if you use TPP as a kind of a promoting the international trade, I think definitely a good thing
1: and will promote promote reform in China. So it depends on how it was portrayed to the world.
2: Um, I think it's, it will be good. Uh, first, for China, uh, we know um, China had uh, interest joining TPP, which Gives a higher standards for, for a lot of the trade and investment related issue. Second, I think it's most important uh, if U.S. does get back to a TPP. I think the multi-nationalist approach to trade and investment is what is very much needed. A uh, good news for the world today.
3: Yeah, it's what it signifies. If that happens, that means that we have learned our lesson in this country about how limited unilateral solutions to our problems are, and that we've gone back to a more multilateral approach, and that we're working on a consensus around what are the important economic policies that are, that are most essential to a strong market economy. China would be more likely to be able to build from that to better achieve its own, because these are China's goals too. The West doesn't own market economics. You know, We've uh, only discovered it over the past couple hundred years. China is only really a few decades behind us, I would say. Um, This is part of the shared uh, 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 civilization of the world, uh, not an American uh, system. Anyway, so it would help. I think the TPP would definitely be helpful
5: for structural reform in the US. (laughs) And what about China? Uh, It mostly depends, but mostly I think it would be positive, and China would probably also accelerate efforts in ASEP, um, and that would be useful. Hi, Joe. How about
4: China offer TPP to the United States?
3: (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, That would be a positive for structural reform. (laughs) I, I mean, partly it's my, for working on this relationship for 40 years, it's my, it's my, Optimism, which can never be defeated, but I'd always believed that, that um, TPP accession by the United States would create what you would have said is the fourth Big Bang in China, that the Chinese had already, had already expressed their interest in slowly moving to a standard um, that would allow them for accession to TPP. And once that had become clear, the, the, the central government would have used that as a way of forcing rapid reform but it wasn't the way the politics went. So, But it ain't over till it's over. Um, let me open the floor to, to questions, which I'm sure there, there are many of. Um, let's see. Well, you've had one. It's right here.
0: Hi. Elizabeth Shern from UPI. I'm a reporter. My question is actually for uh, Mr. Orleans and Mr. Rosen regarding U.S. sentiment about China. I, I feel like this trade war has been driven by populist sentiment. Um, but those of you on the, on the stage today are very pro-trade, uh, which is a healthy sentiment. So I was wondering why the split in US sentiment and can policy address this at
3: all in Washington? Thank you. Um, look, a, a big part of this was foretold decades ago. We knew that as China and the US grew closer to parity, no matter what their fundamentals were, what kind of systems we had, there was going to be more of a sense of contest and rivalry, and there was going to be more, uh, you know, more work for leaders to do to um, help the general uh, society um, maintain a positive sense um, of what this relationship meant and added up to. Um, making it much more complicated. uh, The leadership on the US side is presently emphasizing very negative interpretations of what China means. And I I must say that I find the emphasis uh, in policy on the Chinese side to be equally unhelpful, or maybe more so in fact, in helping to maintain a positive um, uh, sense of uh, uh, direction, uh, not just for Americans, but I think people all over the world outside of China share a certain anxiety that's rising. Again, a good deal of that was inevitable, and you know we have to accept that that's just what happens when power shifts in the world, but the flavor um, of uh, what China brings to the uh, international conversation is a little bit ambiguous right now and, and concerning, not just to Americans. I think the American people, that's a, a majority of the American people, are not anti-trade.
1: There is a very vocal Minority that is anti-trade, that is pro-tariffs, but that the majority—if this could be put to a vote—the majority of Americans would vote um, in favor of free trade, not not anti-free trade. Having said that, there are policies that the Chinese government um, adopts that are, you know, that the tariffs are too high, the non-market restrictions are too much. I mean, you can list 15 policies which feed those who are anti-free trade in the United States, which leads to this debate. Over here, Michael. Is
3: that Michael? Yeah. Uh, Michael Enright, University of Hong Kong, and Enright Scott and Associates. Um, if instead of reading the third plenum Communicate from the 18th Party Congress in isolation, but rather, if one takes the communicates from all of the plenums from the 18th Party Congress, it's much, much more about a reform of the state and reassertion of central authority, etc. My question to the panel is: uh, As we have seen a massive restructuring of the Chinese state, is that viewed as a predicate as necessary in order to promote? Economic reform in a sequential process, in which case we can be optimistic, or is that viewed as a separable and parallel process uh, independent of each other, in which case we could be uh, pessimistic, as Dan's results indicate?
1: Do I have a volunteer?
3: <laughs> I volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says something that my Chinese friends prefer that their American friends. <laughs> um, take a crack at this. And I would only say, um, I think I would only say this, that um, those who assume that, the, uh, that what reform of the state works, looks like for a stronger, modern, wealthier China is uh, Beijing getting out of the way and giving power away to local governments, this sort of thing. That's absolutely wrong, right? I mean, the the challenge of China's new development era is that the state does need to play a stronger role, not a weaker one in the economy. The question is, what's the nature of that role? Um, Either as an economist, I very much prefer to see the state play an honest broker, pro-competitive role as a regulator, making sure that everybody truly has a level playing field to work on. We have, even today in this moment, some important new suggestions from the Chinese side. We've talked about this um, uh, among uh, with our. We've gotten some in- insight from our Chinese friends in recent days. Chinese interest in competitive neutrality as a possible way forward to help better manage some of the concerns in the West around Chinese SOE uh, role in the system in the economy. That's complicated. It takes a long time to talk that one through. But um, our, you know, there needs to be reform of the state. The question is, can the the governance technology, the role that a strong modern center needs to bring to what might soon be the world's biggest economy, be done with business as usual as we know it in the Chinese political system? Can a one-party authoritarian system actually deliver that good government from the center? But make no mistake, China's interests, and the interests of uh, Americans and other countries too, require a very strong, active central government in China that plays a a, a beneficial regulatory role. It's just we need to come to agreement about what that role consists of. Other questions? Right here in the...
0: Good morning, my name is Stephanie Ma from Xinhua News Agency, and I have a question about uh, foreign investment in China. Uh, Some market survey found that recently China... Okay, is that wrong? Um, so some market survey has found that China uh, recently become a uh, priority for some multinational um, companies to invest in some uh, in certain industries like uh, electric vehicles and also other emerging uh, industries like healthcare, and also like you, you just mentioned high-tech um, industries, and my questions are what are the areas or industries do you expect uh, foreign overseas companies to invest, will possibly invest, in 2019? In and how would you comment on China's uh, investment environment for foreign companies? Any suggestions? Thank you so much. Okay, I
4: you. The evening's role is to volunteer others' answer the question.
0: So <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, let me give it a try. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, as China continues to grow and uh, uh, there is a uh, uh, emerging uh, you know a uh, middle class uh, in China and uh, but given the size of population and that middle class size uh, you know uh, you know it, it, it will, will be will be will become the largest thing in the world okay I think that's uh, hopefully that will uh, you know be uh, uh, we we'll see that very soon but the trend is very clear so in that regard I think that uh, China definitely is shifting more into uh, consumption consumption based and uh, and also for you know, so healthcare, education, uh, anything related in that area, I, I think that uh, uh, would be uh, you know in high in high and increasing demand going forward. Our research department did a lot of research on this, led by Dr. Liang. I, I think that uh, certainly is one of the important areas. The second area, of, of course, is related to technology innovation. I think that uh, the electric car is, is certainly in that area, and uh, and uh, but I, I think that the China as China continues to grow. Uh, China will need to invest a, a lot more uh, in, in technology, and uh, so I think that China has been doing a lot in that area, so I think that China welcomes welcome uh, international uh, companies to uh, you know uh, invest in China, or move the headquarters to China, and the CRCC can help.
1: <laughs> I think we're gonna need to, Yang, I think we're gonna need to just invite you, you wanna make some closing remarks, because we're running out of time. Well, I was going to have you make, uh, well, the, the, they'll remain here, and you'll just stand up here. So There's no need to have the panel go back to their seats, but uh, the panel has been great, and I thank you all so much. Okay,
7: uh, so time passed uh, really fast, uh, so we have uh, finished today's forum, I hope uh, that that... Uh, uh, you learn uh, something from here, You can, we should see uh, even among us, uh, Chinese economists, uh, we have really diverse opinions uh, about uh, the Chinese economy. Uh, but uh, even with that, I hope uh, that we have uh, clarified some of the thoughts in your mind. I uh, also want to take uh, this opportunity to thank uh, the Citigroup again to provide uh, is a wonderful venue uh, for us uh, and of course to thank uh, the national uh, committee uh, for uh, their support for our dialogue and this uh, forum Uh, i hope uh, when we come back uh, next year we are going to have better news uh, to tell the audience (laughs) see you next year
1: and let me just let me just add to Yao Yang and ask one thing of the Yao Yang's comments and ask one thing of the audience. I mean, needless to say, the U.S.-China relationship is in its most difficult period in probably 40 years. Um, there is difficult news that comes out every day, and there's a lot that can. For somebody who's worked on that relationship for 40 years, there's a lot that can get you down. But one of the things that lifts my spirits is when we have dialogues like this, that we can get together with our friends from CCR and, and talk frankly about the issues. And it's so important that kind of we can talk, and even when we disagree, we, we talk in friendship and we talk frankly and, and, uh, and truthfully to each other. And I sit there and I just hope our governments can do it too that it's really important that our governments do. And it's important that the debate in China and in the United States be based upon facts. So Abbott, MasterCard, ExCold, Chubb, Eck, and Citi have provided this in the belief that what we do is important and sheds light when there's a lot of heat so what I ask of the audience for having provided you this, what I think is an incredibly informative three plus hours, is that when the debate occurs, and when you, you've got a lot of experts in this audience, and when you know it's wrong, when you know whether it's the Chinese government or the US government is spewing stuff that's just not true, Don't sit there and say to your friends, it's just not true. Speak out. One of the reasons the debate has become as bad as it is is that people who know, people who can benefit from this, don't speak out. So what I ask of you in exchange for what we've given you this morning is just speak out. Just do it. But thank you all for coming. I appreciate it.